in today's episode of the Amon Wire podcast. How do you expect to enter into a, a four rak'ah prayer or to sit down and do 100 istighfars or 100 salawat when you can't even go through two lines of an article? Because you've trained yourself. The internet enforces that and then you're also participating in it. And so we've conditioned ourselves to be distractible and not to go through anything for a long period of time. And we have to start to break that throughout all of our lives in order for us to feel that in the prayer itself and in Dickon and all of these things. Assalamualaikum. Welcome to the Manwar Podcast. Salim here with uh, my co-host Ghaidar. Assalamualaikum. Waalaikum salam Salim. How are you? Good. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. And joining us is our dear friend, Dr. Muhammad Ghilan. Assalamualaikum. Waalaikum salam warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. We wanted to discuss uh, um, the idea of, of feeling it or not feeling it um, as it relates to um, our uh, connection with Allah, our connection with the Quran, uh, even our connection, you know, with um, with others even, you know, you could even throw that in there. But primarily about belief, you know, because there's a crisis of belief. There's a crisis of even Muslims who believe but don't feel like they're really connecting with the deen and connecting with with it spiritually. Perhaps we could you could talk about why this is an, an important thing to discuss it in this time, in this day and age. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina wa Habibina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. So we live in the age of feeling. Um, and that's really why I believe this is an important thing to discuss. Um, a lot of people do things or don't do things based on feeling. Does it make me feel good? Does it not make me feel good? Am I deriving some sort of feeling out of this or am I not? And, um, you know, um, this this uh, pursuit of, I think, you know, uh, uh, pursuit of happiness is what they call it here. Maybe more like a pursuit of pleasure. People mm-hmm. are just looking for pleasure, uh, this euphoric feeling. And that has seeped onto religion. So if I'm doing some sort of religious practice, um, you see that um, prevalent amongst the quote-unquote Sufi circles the, where there's a lot more focus on uh, doing dhikr and maulid and, and um, uh, which is good. I'm not saying it's bad, but it, it, I wonder if we have our intentions right when we come to these things. Are we truly coming to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the sake of remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Are we coming to celebrate the maulid and, uh, and for the sake of uh, increasing our love for the, uh, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? Or are we just coming there because it feels good? Yeah. yeah, that's a big criticism. You know, uh, is that is that really what we're doing? And I think one of the things that I would uh, ch- uh, question or challenge people to do is maybe reflect on how much time they're spending with the Quran versus how much time they're spending with all of their dhikr and stuff. You know, if, you, if you're not reciting the Quran at all and your association with tasawwuf and tariqahs and all of that is strictly just about the adhka, about uh, doing qasaid, for example, and that's it, there's something off about that. So uh, what, what I've been finding anyways, from just from my own personal interactions with people that come to me and question and, and ask, is um, they're really um, feeling a sense of kind of um, disconnect or just a lack of uh, experience. They're looking for an experience. And that's really what religion has been reduced to. If I don't feel that experience, then should I even continue doing this? Mm. Because everything else in life has to do with experience. And if I'm not getting the experience that I should be getting from this, then, you know, and even in the tradition, the Prophet ﷺ says, talks about halawatul iman, the sweetness of faith. Yeah. So there's an idea that there should, there should be some sort of an experiential sweetness that you get from 
doing these things. But ultimately, these things are gifts from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he grants to whomever he pleases. And um, from just my personal anecdotal kind of accounts that I've come across, they usually, these experiences come to people who weren't looking for them. Mm. It's, mm, right. it's usually people yeah. who just they're strictly they're doing it because they want to get to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they want to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and out of that they get that sense of pleasure um, to give you kind of uh, maybe an analogy and uh, one thing that I, I notice now when you are doing things just for the sake of your spouse just you want to make them happy they will just be giving to you they will just want to do things for your sake to make you happy if you're not seeking a tit for tat kind of a thing, if you're not taking, if you're not keeping, uh, as far as I can tell now, it's a happy marriage is one in which you don't necessarily have an expectation of return uh, for what you give, but Subhanallah, when you give, you get folds back if if there's that kind of cordial relationship. So it's kind of like that, you know. It's uh, um, you know, when you're doing things for the sake of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. He will just gift you things that whatever you thought you were seeking before is nothing compared to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has in store for you. So when people are not feeling, I tell them, like, don't chase the feeling. Because you know what? I've heard Christians, I've heard Buddhists, I've heard Hindus, I've heard um, Jews. I mean, all different types of traditions, even atheists, they will talk about a feeling. You know, I feel a sense of connectedness with the universe. I feel a sense of spiritual kind of whatever. Um, and now they're chasing it through other means. You know, the atheists are looking for it in ayahuasca tree, tea and, and going to Peru and sitting with a shaman and, and inhaling some fumes. And, and that's what they're doing. Society generally, our culture, is ba based on, you know, f uh, pharmaceuticals and getting that elated feeling. The opioid epidemic, how it starts usually from accounts that I've heard was, you know, somebody had a back injury or had a knee injury and they go to the hospital and they get some Percocet and they just enter into this other dimension that they didn't realize exists. And it's really powerful. And then they want to continue doing that again. So it's this chase after this kind of, I don't know, it's almost like a dissociative experience from the body. We, and it's actually misdirected because the spirit, you know, Imam al-Ghazali, after he passed away, they found a poem in which he said, don't weep over me. Um, I'm like a bird who was caged and now I'm free. Um, is kind of the rough translation of that. And, and that's kind of what people are seeking out. It's, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a recognition, kind of a subconscious recognition that we're not home and we want to be with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So on the one hand, it's positive in the sense that you, there's that recognition. But on the other hand, it might be warped and misdirected to make worship about getting a feeling. And if that's what we're doing, there's kind of a subtle form of idolatry there. Because you're chasing something. You're chasing this. You're searching for the state. You're actually almost worshiping the state. Exactly. In the, sense, exactly. the feeling. So yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, I sort of like. Let's first talk within the bounds of Islam. Yeah. Like so, we're, you know, and I think you know, and then maybe we can get into like you know the this not feeling it and how it relates to this epidemic of uh, you know uh, um, atheism or agnosticism that you know, we're dealing with today. But um, in terms of Muslims who like, as you already mentioned, who like maybe searching for like searching for spiritual states and to be wary of that. There's a, there's a, there's a hikam, a wisdom from Ibn Ta'ala where he said that, you know, don't abandon the, um, the, the weird or the invocation of, of God, the, the remembrance of God, you know, because you don't feel his presence because it's better that, you know, it's better to be forgetful in your, in doing the weird than to, um, 
to not do it at all. So um, what would be like, what is the approach that Muslims should, 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 should consider who are having that difficulty in connecting? Like, so when they hear the Quranic recitation, you know, they don't feel that, that feeling in the heart that of, of, uh, of humility, or they're not feeling that, that power of the Quran in their heart that they feel like they should be feeling it, that humility, they should feel that, that, that sense of, you know, awe, um, or that sense of connection in their salah, or that sense of, and we're, I'm not even talking about euphoric states, we're talking just about that feeling, you know, I mean, uh, what, what, what is the approach that you would suggest for us to be able to, um, try to foster that connection and, but at the same time, not give up on doing the work mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, we're, we're getting discouraged. Um, I would say to that is, um, I mean, specifically with the Quran, for example, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us when the Quran is recited, فَاسْتَمِعُوا لَهُ وَأَنصِتُوا So hear it and, and listen intently. Mm-hmm. Uh, may you be, may you receive mercy. And, um, uh, we're we're very distractible, you know. We listen to these things, and it's almost like background noise. And when we do it, we have to actually have a sense of presence as it's ha- taking place. That goes with whether you're reciting or listening to the Quran. Also, when you are uh, engaged in dhikr, even the qasaid, the poetry that's being recited in remembrance of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala or in praise of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, to actually listen and contemplate and reflect on the meanings that are being related. Now, how uh, you know? How do you attain attain that state? Um, to get into that state, uh, Sheikh Mukhtar Maghrawi uh, had a beautiful thing. He said um, in one of the Sahba uh, lectures uh, when I was in Istanbul last year, and he mentioned something that was very beautiful. If you're properly in a state of khushur, you're going to be in a state of khushur all the time. You know, the state of uh, khushur is the state of um, uh, intent kind of uh, awe and observance and uh, presence while you're in prayer. And so we talk about being in khushur while you're in prayer so that you're not distracted, you're not thinking about your accounting or your, or your bills coming up or your exams coming up or whatever. You're just with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But he was relating he, uh, some of the statements of the tabi'een and that if you're in khushur in prayer, a proper khashia is one who's actually in khushur all the time in all mm-hmm. of your states. Mm-hmm. So how do you get to that? Well, you have to actually do that throughout your day. You have to practice that sense of presence and consciousness throughout the day. And the thing that I tell people to do, and this is something I've, I've been doing for a while now, and I noticed that it has a spillover effect into my prayer. I downloaded Headspace, this meditation app. I didn't even pay for the full app version. I just took the basics course that they have, which is like nine audio recordings that are each 10 minutes or okay. so long. And it's guided meditation. You know, tell you sink into your seat. You know, take deep breaths. Now close your eyes, and then the the guide will walk you through how to feel your breath and how to listen to the all, pay attention to all the noise around you, and then uh, your consciousness is like the sky, and the thoughts are like the. Clouds is there some like rippling through. brook of water or something? Yeah, no, no. It's just he's just <laughs> silent. Yeah. Okay. There's okay. no there's no music to it. There's no rippling any sound. Okay. It's actually really nice because. He's uh, the guide is trying to get you to pay attention to your ambient noise, mm, like what's okay. going around you. Pay attention to all of that, and your thoughts are like clouds, and your consciousness is, consciousness is the sky, is a blue sky, 
And so he tells you just like, well, just kind of observe these thoughts that are passing through. And you're walking through this for like 10 minutes where he just kind of walks you through all these things. And what I found myself doing, because he, and then he takes you as you go back and reflect on noises and sounds and thoughts and whatever. And then he's like, now back to your breath and count your 10 breaths. The interesting thing about this is when, so for the listeners, you're listening now, and even you guys, you're listening now. What you're hearing is the past. It took time for my sound to be mm-hmm. produced and go travel through air, get to your eardrums, neural transmission to happen, brain to process all of that. By the time you actually register and, and, and re- realize the sound that's coming from my voice right now, I've already passed it. You're listening to the past. Same thing with sight. You know, it's, it's light that's traveling, reflecting from objects and then coming to your eyes. That takes time. It's in the millisecond range, so you don't really sense it. You feel like you're seeing it now, but what actually is happening is you're observing the past. So on the one hand, everything that you see and experience is the past. Everything you think about, anxieties and worries and things, is about the future, things that could come. And the breath is really the only thing that you have in the present. And so in guided meditation, they try to get you to just reflect on that one breath that you have as you take it in and take it out. And even that, in a sense, it's also past because your brain is processing what just happened. But still, it's the closest thing to the present that you can have is sense and consciousness of your breath. And that's what guided meditation gets you to do. And the better you get at it, and the more you do that throughout your day where you can meditate while you're walking, so you can just reflect on your breath as you're walking, so that you can be present, the more you do that, the more you dissociate a little bit from um, time. You don't transcend it, but you dissociate to some degree where you are now staying in the present. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is transcendent above time and space. He's beyond all of that. But So he's eternally present. He has no beginning, no end. He doesn't progress through anything. He's just He's eternally present. So for you to get into that state, that's as close as you can get to experiencing kind of the divine in a way. That's like a path to do that. And when you do that outside of prayer and outside of dhikr, outside of that, and you do it throughout your whole day, so you have, you have to exercise that outside of prayer in order for you to get back into the prayer. When you get into the prayer, you actually feel that sense of presence. And as you feel that sense of presence in prayer, in dhikr and salawat and all that, you'll actually start to experience the thing that, you're at, that, you're, that you were expecting to experience from uh, spiritual kind of states. Uh, but you have to exercise some agency over that. And you have to do that outside of it. Now, if you're a distractible person, you know, look at uh, social media, look at YouTube, look at all of these things. YouTube, what, what, what makes a video go viral? It has to be less than five minutes. Like you can't have a long video. People don't watch it. We are actually being trained to be distractible mm-hmm. and to be distracted all the time. And we can't sustain our attention for a long enough period to read a book to listen to anything long, even music. When people are listening to music, nobody listens to the whole thing. Like I, when I play my anashid, the qasaid that I have on my iPhone here and I just play it, I will listen to the whole thing from start to finish. But there was a time when I could like halfway through it, I'm like, all right, I'm done, next thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and people do that with music now. Like when they listen to their album and stuff, they'll listen to the first chorus, yeah. you know, the first stanza, whatever, chorus, and then move on to the next thing. Um, there is actually... Um, there's a DJ, um, Girl Talk is the name of this DJ. He went huge when I was back in college. And the reason he went huge was because he would take all these, he would do a mashup. And the mashup was literally like 
five lines from a song and then he would move right. on to the next one. And he did it in a seamless way where it um, it felt like you were listening to one song. Yeah. yeah. But it was actually a mashup of just different things just kind of meshed up together and you, you didn't have to listen to for too long. Now, if you're doing that throughout all of your life, you know, your internet experience is you read an article, there's all these hyperlinks, you're opening them and you're going to the next one before you even finish the article you were reading. So you're there. There's a reference that's hyperlinked. You click on it, yeah, and you, you go just to the next it's thing. like going down a rabbit hole, right? And you just keep going down this <laughs> rabbit hole. So you're never finishing anything. Yeah. How do you expect to enter into a, a four rak'ah prayer or to sit down and do a hundred istighfars or a hundred salawat when you can't even go through two lines of an article because you've trained yourself? The internet enforces that, and then you're also participating in it, and so we've conditioned ourselves to be distractible and not to go through anything for a long period of time. And we have to start to break that throughout all of our lives in order for us to feel that in the prayer itself and in dhikr and all of these things. Yes, SubhanAllah, you mentioned this and, uh, you know, um, and I, I do have an interest in, uh, you know, nasheed and uh, the following qasaid and, and whatnot, even if it if it's not about the, uh, you know, ritual practices and, and, and the ibadat and whatnot, uh, you know the way I at least uh, you know came to you know at, to taste the the uh, the realm of music and and, and nasheed is the classical way at least through my background when I when I grew up you need to take some time in order to be able to you know uh, get into the sultana you know into the mm. mode of listening to mm. the music you can't just be engaged with music right away even the uh, you know the great munshideen of the 20th century um, uh, that, I, that I love to listen to you know sometimes the munshid sits down for about 5 or 10 minutes just saying ahat and yalil and mm. kada yani just to, some, some of these like just to kind of get people into the mood and then he would burst into the qasida mm-hmm. you know and even if you, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, it, it, I mean, and this is my own just personal reflection. Even if you look into the qasaid of the Arab in the past, you know, they used to like, you know, hayyij al asjan, you know, like in, in the, uh, you know, the, the love of Layla and the love of the things that are uh, beautiful, or sometimes the the melancholy feelings, like how you left your land and how you uh, like how you stand on the atlal on the on the things. And then you get to the gist of the matter later, mm, you know. So, yeah. so there's always something. There's always that time factor that needs to, you know, kind of take it into uh, that, that you need to take it into consideration. So, not feeling it to me maybe is a by maybe is a byproduct from what you just mentioned, uh, you know, CD right mm. now. That you know we are just way too used to uber dynamic approach to to any to everything that we that we have you know and and even if you look at our professional life in our careers you know everything is about making it faster you know yeah. i'm in project management now we're just uh, what's the next tool that makes my you know my mm. agile like even the, the, the we we moved from waterfall prod, uh, projects to agile projects mm. uh, pro- projects or like the way of approaching uh, developing a, a product or a software so i think that that just very fast life is also adding to the not feeling it factor you know and and, and it's just like the, that's all like the senses are you know speed just takes you away from your senses and takes you away from your hal um, now some people can argue the other way around you know but um, to me at least from my own experiences uh, slowing down 
you know, whether it's in reflection, whether it's in, you know, sitting in silence or, or even, you know, even the salah itself, if you like, you know, from the tradition of the Prophet Somebody just knocked in his 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 four rakat like in you know right. uh, in a Usain Bolt style and then he just came back up and right. then the was like get back you know yeah, <laughs> he yeah, didn't yeah. pray just go back and do it again mm. so maybe that's Allah Alam one I mean, of the things that can be we, translated during during the surgery rotation we just finished um, uh, the reg um, uh, nikta and artery so some bleeding happening it was a GI surgery and. Uh, it was a colectomy, so they were cutting off uh, part of the bowel because mm-hmm. it had cancer in it. And um, the the consultant, she just said, and he was, you could tell he was like starting to sweat a little bit. And it's like there's blood all over the place. And, uh, so, and so she's like, slow down, stop, 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 stop. Mm. All right. Look around. Where is it coming from? Slowly go. Because if he just kept going, he might have nicked something else. Mm-hmm. And so in surgery, one of the things that she, um, uh, our consultant, she does guided meditations as well. And one of the first things that she mentioned was, you know, in high stakes situations, something happens. She actually makes everyone stop what you're doing. Let's just actually take a second, breathe, and then proceed slowly. Otherwise, you'll be shaky. You'll just, you'll end up in a more dire situation than the one that appears to you right now. Yeah. That's a pretty high stakes uh, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's like when you're. Well, maybe it's different now because we have phone navigations or something. But it's like you're driving. We say you had the radio on, right? Yeah. And then like you just get lost. Yeah, yeah. You know, just sort of like you're like <laughs> first thing you do, you turn, turn you turn the radio down. You just gotta concentrate. You know, and I was like listening to you guys. What, what some of the things you were saying? Like one of the analogies I think of is like you know, it's like waking up. Um, you know, and and you can speak to this, Doctor Glenn. Um, from a, from a, from a neurologic point of view, but like, you know, there's actually, you, there's a, there's a fogginess that happens. Like, you know, all of us know this when you wake up, there's a mm-hmm. certain fogginess that, um, it takes, um, I think it's about an hour, hour, 15 minutes before that the, 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 the uh, the higher level cognition mm-hmm. really, really kicks in, yeah. you know? And it's like, so you have to have like this sort of period where you start to either warm up or um, start to shed yourself of some of these distractions, like you know what we were just talking about. So it's almost like you you have to sort of get you rouse yourself awake before you can get in that state. So it's like you know with your salah with the Quran, like how are you coming to that? Like you know, are you just coming sitting? You know, you're you're working and then like oh, it's time for the Go run and just go and start you know start your salah and you think you know you're not going to be thinking about like you know the project you're just working on. You're thinking about where you you left such and such thing. You know, so it's like that. You it's almost like you need that sort of that sort of buffer period. Um, and like it was interesting you're talking you're talking about the meditation, uh, Muhammad, because. Um, I think a lot of a lot of Muslims like when they hear someone talk about meditation, they get really like antsy and yeah, nervous and they're like, "What you know? Yeah. What minhaj is this guy on? Yeah. What is this guy doing? <laughs> like you know, what are they trying to what are they trying to infiltrate into our religion? Yeah. You know, this is an Eastern thing or this is a New Age yeah. spirituality thing. Yeah. Uh, Where's the rug in this? <laughs> I mean, you know what? The, there's a hadith the Prophet sallam the beginning of worship is silence. Mm. I mean, <laughs> yeah. One way to explain that or to understand that is just sit silently. And what do you what do you do when you're meditating? You're literally just sitting silently. 
And the concept of khalwa is not something that is, you know, uh, it's alien to oh, us. Yeah. I mean, it's foreign. The Prophet ﷺ, even before the, uh, yeah. you know, yes. uh, yeah. onstart of the Nabuwa, and he was just like uh, doing I mean, before he wasallam had all the athkar and the awrad and the things like that, like you mentioned, uh, you would go to Ghar Hira. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you look into what the scholars say, like what was that? Like what were the acts of things that he saw mm-hmm. was doing? Nobody knows. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. We don't know what he was yeah. doing, but he saw Sallam was going, and he Khadija was sent off sustenance for him, just just to allow him to continue doing that. What was he doing? He was checking out. He was checking out from the hustle and bustle of Mecca. He was going out into the desert, sitting in a cave, a small cave. Yeah. And just is it contemplation? Is it reflection? Is it what is it? We don't know, but. I mean, at the very least, you can't dismiss meditation as a uh, as a proper way to just kind of slow down and 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 reflect on, at the very least, just your own mental state. Right, and then uh, uh, you know this is a great point, uh, Dr. Ghilam, because when you come to uh, to that, it's also a gateway of a very essential concept in, in our deen uh, and the, actually two concepts muraqaba and muhasaba you know how can you like you know have that if you don't have you know uh, that kind of reflection or slowing down or the internal you know inward uh, you know kind of focus so, uh, so yeah, I it's, it's interesting you know that there's all these activities that are being done um, or being promoted in the realm of what's called self-improvement but if you really, um, uh, but that's they're they're done in a very limited kind of myopic, uh, with a myopic vision. You know, it's the self. It's all about the ana. And if you look into these practices, you know, journaling, for example, a gratitude journal, and and all of that stuff. Subhanallah. Every time I come across these things, we have a call to do them in our tradition, but with a different intention. And the intention is about improving our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So uh, the fact that we talk about meditation or journaling and, and gratitude journals and stuff like that, that's, that doesn't mean that we're importing something foreign. It's just that we are taking something that non-Muslims are doing for, a, for a, a not such a noble intention, if you will, and we're actually making it noble. And he saw Salam said, mu'min. You know, wisdom is the lost property of the believer. Wherever you find it, you actually have more right to it. Uh, you have more right, you as a believer, you have more right to taking over. And if you want to use the term uh, appropriating mm-hmm. meditation and appropriating journaling, and we have to appropriate these things because we have the proper minhaj, if you will. We have the proper full kind of picture of everything. So, and ultimately, you know, uh, the highest station that you can achieve and and uh, uh, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is is a station of taqwa. You know, he saw Salam and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in Surah Al-Hujurat, in Akramakum in the most noble with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala amongst you is the one who has the most taqwa. But you ask, like, what is taqwa? How do you what it's not a cognitive intellectual state. Taqwa is an emotive kind of state of being. And it is not a feeling either. It's it's a state of being. It's how you are. And how do you get to that? Well, you have to engage in regular, consistent practices, you know, morning and evening and throughout your day and, and always in a state of remembrance and to get to that, to that state of taqwa. And that's how you get guidance. So, you know, I tell people to take up these things. 
you don't have to, I'm not telling you to go do yoga, for example, or, you know, do these practices that maybe non-Muslims are engaging in with, with un-Islamic intents, you know, theologically problematic intents, but guided meditation, there's nothing wrong with that. You're just, it's, guided meditation is, is basically almost like uh, uh, personal training for the mind that we do. And you, you go to the gym and you do personal training to get your workouts right. And they tell you like this, how you do the movements and stuff. Uh, guided meditation is that kind of thing for the conscious mind, you know, thoughts and things like that. So that you can get into the state of presence. You know, guided meditation is nothing theologically problematic unless you have someone like, you know, new atheists or whatever who are now starting meditation apps and stuff. And they're doing mm-hmm. it with the intent of desacralizing, you know, like uh, people like Sam Harris and whatnot, they have meditation apps and stuff like that. They're doing it with even the guided meditation that he would do. I haven't heard it, but just knowing what kind of things he's into and what I've heard about what he says in it, it's actually to make you dissociate from the divine. It's not about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's really about just self-aggrandizement. So those ones I wouldn't, you know, go after. But Headspace, you know, they have the basics thing. It's nine audio recordings. They're very short. It's free. You know, go for it. Use it and have a male or a female voice. So the sisters can use the female voice and the guys can use the male voice. It's really nice. You know, it's calming and and you get to, and it does seep in. It has a spillover effect. You see it across uh, everything else and you enter into what, I guess to use kind of their ter- uh, ter- parlance, it's a Zen state, if you will, Buddhist mm-hmm. terminology. The Zen state. What is a Zen state? It's a state of presence. It's just like constancy. All of the different turuq, you know, Tijaniya, Chaduliya, you know, Darqawiya, whoever, like the Rifa'iya, they all have adhkar, they have awrad, and they tell you to do these awrad day in and day out. Morning and evening, you have a set of awrad. They don't take long, you know, five, ten minutes. That's the word for that particular tariqah. You do it, and you do it consistently. Those people who are consistent with it, they have a different state of presence. And you could tell. You could tell those who are doing their awrad regularly from those who are, who are, who are not. It's pretty obvious. Because when something doesn't go the, you know, as planned, there's a response, there's a reaction that people have. And depending on how connected they are with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you actually see the reaction take place. Like, oh, are you in a state of anxiety? Are you in a state of despair? Do you lose your way? Do you, whatever. Um, so, again, you know, if you're not feeling it, I think what I would say is just um, reflect on your regular daily life. You can't, as uh, Salim mentioned, you know, you can't go from busy with work and studying or whatever, and then all of a sudden I'm going to jump into prayer and expect that I'm going to just enter into some state right away. Either you're in that state all the time, or what you might need to do is, I mean, in every act of worship, the first condition for it is niya, having intention. Intention, to get that intention, you have to pause. It's like, why am I doing this? All right, I'm doing this because it's an act of worship. And prayer, the act of prayer begins from the moment the time enters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And not then, yeah. the Allahu Akbar and the enter the right. It actually begins from the moment the time you yeah. hear it. And, and even some of the ulama actually tell you, like, you know, pay attention to how you begin your wudu, you know, yes. like how you exactly. slow down on the wudu, how exactly. to, and even like, you know, I, for, I forget which uh, the scholars, like, how they used to 
tremble when they do the wudu. Yeah, because he's Zayn al-Abedin. Zayn al-Abedin. And then, yeah. you know, and, and they would ask him, yeah. why why are you afraid or why are you... And he was like, do you know... Who I'm going to stand in front of him? So all of that, you know, they would do all the way to the salah and, and yeah. waiting for the iqama. And the yeah. Even, even uh, you know, I know like some, some of the some of the ulama, like uh, I forgot, oh, like planning it in your mind, like mm. some sort of self-visualization, like, you know, that wouldn't be when he, he said, like, let's, like standing in front of Salah, like thinking of Jannah yeah. and thinking mm. that Nara is right below me, right? And mm. thinking that, and sort of just conceiving of this, this right. before the yeah. even, even. Yeah. Uh, I was watching uh, this video, um, uh, Steve Nash, the retired basketball player. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He has the highest uh, percentage of free throw, um, I think something like 92% or something like that, like made free throws in his career, the highest percentage. And um, of all NBA. Because he's he Nash. Like, right, Steve Nash. <laughs> but the thing is, he was asked, like, how'd you get to that? And he tells you his practice and all that. But he actually says something very interesting. Um, before he does any free throw, he does a couple of practice, just visualization kind of motion without the ball. Right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Right. He, he envisions it in his mind. If he gets a chance, he'll do a couple of shots with his hand. Right. And then he will do the, the, the free throw. And so that actually goes to that, you know, Sayyid Salim, like actually to begin by first visualizing. And you look at every, all these athletes and, and people who do like just amazing feats, they all say the same thing. They begin with visualization. Right. They imagine, they put themselves in that state and, and they uh, they go through the steps and then they go in and do it. That actually, and actually um, uh, even like from sort of some, some mundane matters, like it's a way of, um, it sort of burn pre burns it into you. Yeah. Like that's one of the things they uh, the, one of the things they talk about. Like if you want to remember something, right? Mm. Like uh, say like I have to go look up such and such topic, right? Yeah. You you think you think to yourself you think and you visualize yourself going and going sitting in the computer and looking up something, and that's actually gonna like you know later on when you when you have to do it you'll remember it because you mm. visualize yourself doing it. Mm. So it's like almost that same sort of idea of yeah of. Um, of that I wanted to um, sort of from from this to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, the role of a, the summation of life experiences in how you feel at the given moment. Because for a lot of of, of people who are having doubts about faith or people who are um, who have even left Islam or left other um, religion, um, they've had a life of experience where. Um, they didn't not just feel it, but it was just it was just constantly presented to them. Religion, Islam, were presented that it's like okay, you just got to do this, you just got to do this, you got to do your prayers, got to do this, and they were never um, they never had that presence, they never felt that connection, and because of that, almost repetitive over yeah. years, they they have um, a very you know strong feeling that's you know that's against religion because of that and that and that that becomes a barrier for them it becomes an obstacle for them to even open their mind and heart again to to going back to religion Mm. so i wonder if you could comment about sort of this role of of life experience and how that how that plays a role in how we feel and as well as and not feeling it in our current state yeah i would say um it begins first of all parents out there you really have to pay attention to what you're exposing your children to from a very young age regarding religion. So I have my brother-in-law and others around me. What they do with uh, my sister, with my nephew now, and my brother or my 
nephew and niece, what they're doing with them is at a very young age, we're talking like under a year old, starting from that point on, these kids are being exposed to Quran recitation and, and their their lullabies to go to sleep are usually like qasaid and burda and things like that. And what that's doing, they don't understand what's going on. But like, you know, they what as far as they're concerned, they it's it sounds really nice, it's soothing, it's calming. And so it's it's preparing them emotionally, it's setting kind of an emotional backdrop that anything to do with Islam is something that makes me feel good and something that relaxes me. So when they grow up, the intellectual stuff that comes later, it's a lot easier for them to go through that and it's like, okay, that all makes sense because they're emotionally ready for it. The uh, research looking into why people convert to any religion, not just Islam, but to any religion, is uh, number one is the community connections. It's the experience. How do they experience that community of believers? Do they feel welcome? Do they feel relaxed in that environment? Do they feel something of a camaraderie? And that's what, uh, and then the intellectual stuff comes later. So even if you had a, a lifetime of negative experiences, the beloved sallallahu says, you know, a person is going to be upon the religion of their close. Khalil is like someone who you, like, khalil is like when you take your fingers and intertwine them. So the, like your closest companions, the people that you surround yourself with. So it starts off from, it it's really has to do with your social circles and people around you. So if you have, if you're somebody who has just a negative perspective, negative view, negative kind of experience with Islam, um, as difficult as, as it might be for you, I would say, first of all, just um, look into, try to dissociate that from the rational kind of case of the religion itself. I get asked sometimes, like, you know, why are you a Muslim and nothing else? I'm like, it's because the, it's the only religion where my, the rational is coinciding with the emotional and the spiritual. Like, the, I don't feel a sense of tension between the two. Well, how do I uh, make sure that my emotional and spiritual state is, I, I make it, I make sure that my surrounding circle of people are people who are kind of, they're grounded. They're people who are spiritual, people who, you know, they speak to the, what the religions actually teach. People who are upon the sunnah of the beloved sallallahu um, but it, like you say, it's, it's actually a very, um, uh, important aspect of this. Your life, your accumulated life experience can lead you down a path where you start to do a post hoc rationalization of why you would leave the religion. And I don't say that as a, from a place of arrogance. It's just, it's fact. Every single ex-Muslim I've ever come across, they had no rational case. So if there's a non, an ex-Muslim listening to this, I say this without trying to demean you or to put you down or anything, but like it is what it is. It's fact is fact. You have no case. There's no rational case for you leaving Islam. You left Islam because you had, you did not get the right um, environment for it. You had negative experiences. You have to reflect on what your experience with Islam has been that led you down that path, including I've sat with some people who say like, oh, I, I don't have ill feelings towards the religion. And then when you really push forward and ask like, where'd you grow up? How'd you, you know, I grew up in a country X where, you know, with the parents who did Y and the friends who were engaged in Z. And that's, and okay, that makes sense. And then all of your reading material happens to be a bunch of enlightenment philosophers who were responding against Christianity and what they were experiencing from it in France and in England, for example. And that's what you're reacting, and you're using them and their arguments to react against Islam. So that's a, there's a lot of disconnect that happens in that case. So 
you know, I tell, I tell, I tell these guys, you know, you need to just, um, uh, and I direct them to different people, you know, you, depending on the location that they're in, you need to go into this gathering because this is where this religion is being practiced. How do you know that this is the right thing? Well, I know because we studied, you know, we've been around teachers and scholars who actually, uh, you know, back everything they do and say based on our uh, primary sources. And there is a pedigree there. And subhanAllah, with all the different isms and ideologies that have arisen over the past 1400 years, there, was, there has been one constant group, and it's these people, Ahl-Sunnah al-Jama'ah, Ahlullah. They've always been there. And there are different groups that arose and died off, but these people still continue with their chains of transmission and they continue with the same teachings. What you see them doing today is exactly the same thing that has been done for the last 1400 years. It hasn't changed. So that's kind of what I would say to those people. You have to look into why do you feel this way and maybe get yourself around circles of people that might adjust that. But there is no rational case for leaving Islam. Well, I mean, uh, for those who actually, you know, back to Salim's point, for those who uh, are who went through this uh, and, and did have that kind of resentment or not feeling it because of the accumulation of all these different experiences that were maybe negative one way or another. After arriving at to the rational you know, conclusion that this is you know, because of that, I'm not saying give me like a word or two of how to snap back into it. You know, I'm saying what are the first steps to get us back you know, to trying to, you know, delve into the feeling again for those, you know, I mean, is it something that is, you know, psychological, you know, uh, maybe somebody uh, counseling or that, I mean, what would I do if I were to be one of those, uh, you know, folks who were exposed to that? I would say it's the same thing as someone who all of a sudden steps on the scale and finds themselves weighing 250 pounds. You know, you did not go to sleep and wake up the next day at 250 pounds. You know, obesity and getting overweight is a long process of accumulated a pound here, a pound there. And it's like it took a few years, you know, to be into a, a non-healthy state. So to get back to health, it's also a gradual process where it begins with small changes and tinkerings. And, you know, um, when it comes to dieting, for example, why do people yo-yo diet? And, and when they lose the weight, they gain it back and gain a little bit more. It's because they're trying to lose all the weight quickly and their body was used to a, meta a metabolic rate of being at 250 pounds, a set point. And you can't just go from 250 to 200 in two months and then expect that you're set. It takes longer for your metabolic set point to adjust to get back down to the 200. And that's why they gain the weight back. Mm -hmm. It's because their metabolic rate and their body is saying like, well, what's going on? I, I need to be 250. Mm -hmm. So that's why we tell them you have to actually take an even longer term kind of progression down to get your metabolic rate to set. Similarly, with spiritual state, you know, you didn't get to this point overnight. This was an accumulation of years of experience. So you actually have to, the first thing I would say is, they tell you, first go to your doctor, get your full body checkup, make sure there's nothing wrong there. And then you go into some sort of an exercise program and a dieting program that gets you to go through the process. So go to a, an accredited kind of acknowledged imam attested for, scholar, teacher somewhere get an assessment, and then after that, you go through a program. And the Prophet ﷺ says, delve into this religion gently. So how do you do that? They tell you, first start off with the fundamentals. 
the first, you don't start playing basketball from nothing and then expect to do 360 dunks. That's all. Here's how to dribble the ball. <laughs> here's how you do tra- here, here's traveling. Here's double dribble. You know, this is a, so you have to start with the fundamentals. The fundamentals are your five daily prayers, right? You know, you're fasting in Ramadan. Just do the fundamentals. And that's what we tell people to do. As you get used to these things and they take part of your life in a way where you can't function without them, then you add to them a little bit. And Ahabul Amali Illahi the most beloved of actions to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are those which are most consistent, even if they're very little. And you will find people who do very little acts of worship, but they become awliya of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I mean, um, there's mashayikh that uh, uh, we hear about and we read about, and we look at their specific acts, they actually didn't do much. They were not big time worshippers in that way. But they were they had states with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because they were just, you know, they stuck to the fundamentals. They just did the thing that they needed to do. So the same thing, you know, I would just say start slowly and then surround yourself with the right suhbah. You know, make sure that you're surrounding yourself with the right people. Um, there are, I mean, at least in our city, there are a couple of gatherings every week that we go to. There is, and you have to recognize that the nafs also needs a little bit of rawha. So it's not all about just ritual acts of worship that are prescribed as such. There's also these times where you go, like sitting at a maulid, you know, having, find a weekly gathering where people are just sitting and singing the qasaid. That does something to the soul. It, it elates it. So, yeah, go find these places, sit in these gatherings, and don't overwhelm yourself with all of that stuff. The same way that we say don't diet and try to lose 50 pounds in two months. Don't try to go from nothing to everything overnight. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, attend a gathering week, do your fundamentals, and slowly but surely, and start studying, and start learning, and start reading, start reading the seerah. It's a, it's a holistic kind of approach to everything. You don't just start going to the gym and continue with your bad diet habits. You know, it's, you're going to make a life change overall that will lead you down the path of physical health. You should also have a, a plan to go down spiritual health. There's a methodology, and you have to follow this methodology for you to get to health. I, I actually, um, just uh, one uh, last angle uh, to, to wrap this up, hopefully, uh, is the angle of fear, you know, uh, that, you know, for those who are practicing now, you know, and have been practicing for a while and got to experience some of it and then uh, entered into not feeling it zone, if I could say. You have this fear, you know, some, some, uh, now those who, we we spoke about those who were, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, but now those who have been, you know, into the, uh, you know, uh, their own rituals and, 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 and have been on a regiment for a while, these lapses sometimes occur. And when they occur, they enter into the state of fear, you know, like, uh, and, and that fear sometimes, I mean, it's, le- it's legitimate. It's something that, you know, people, you know, have been always, you know, um, even from the time of Sahaba, you know, Dua Sayyidi Abdullah bin Abbas, you know, Allahumma la ta'akhudni min al-Islam wa la ta'akhudni islam minni or kama qal. So don't take me out, oh Allah, don't take me out of Islam and don't take Islam out of me. And then the famous hadith of Prophet Sallallahu uh, you know that, you know, uh, in this dunya, th- there'll be fitan, there'll be trials and tribulations like uh, the pieces of, uh, you know, uh, the dark night where a mu'min will wake up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kafir and then will 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 end up uh, mu'min and then vice versa. 
So that kind of fear, you know, which is a legitimate fear, you know, mm-hmm. uh, we, we fly to Allah with, you know, two wings of fear and hope, as, as the ulama say. But how do I, uh, you know, use that fear rather than uh, fall prey to it? You know, I, I guess that's just one, one last thing I wanted just to mention from the other side of the equation. Um, uh, some of the awliya tell us that um, at uh, the start of your path, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give you the gifts of feeling it and, and really experiencing these spiritual states. And the closer you get, there, you'll go through a period where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take that away from you. Mm-hmm. And that is to test you. To see, are you worshipping me because of the state or are you worshipping me because you're submitting? Right? And so that's why I say it's important for you to continue to study and learn. Because the 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 qaida here, the thing that ties us up is is the sharia, the sharia. And so we do these things because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded them. Ultimately, anything that we do, you know, the, one of the contentions that some of the scholars have with the branch of the study of maqasad al-sharia, the objectives of the sharia, is that they have a concern that people will start to do things because there is of some objective of the sharia itself just for the worldly thing. Mm. And many things in the sharia are just ta'abudi. It's just because Allah said so, so we just do them. Um, not to delegitimize the, the field of objectives of sharia, but just to recognize that like even as we study these things and recognize the wisdoms of the Islamic law, it's still because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us to do something and that's why we do it. We don't do it because of the wisdom, we do it because Allah said so. And the wisdom is a byproduct that we understand later on. So to just recognize that there are states, and that's why, you know, it's important. You know, something that we've been kind of increasingly telling people to do is, um, and I would say do it carefully, um, uh, is to find a teacher, find a sheikh. You need to be with a sheikh. Because only having somebody, like Ibn Asher, when he says in his Urjuza, um, at the end of it in Babu Tasawwuf, he says, uh, That to accompany a sheikh who knows the past. Because only when you're with a sheikh who's gone through these states, Imam Zaid has a beautiful analogy. He's like, let's say that you go on hiking. And there's no signs anywhere on the, on, on the hike path. I mean, we, we went hiking recently in Vancouver. And... Had it not been for the orange markings on the trees, you would have gotten lost. You wouldn't. We wouldn't have gotten to this beautiful, amazing turquoise-colored water lake with clear that you could just see the ground. It just an amazing sight. But it was these orange markings on the trees that showed us the path. Now imagine you didn't have the orange markings, and you had somebody there who's from that area, who's gone through, who's gone through it multiple times, and they can say, "Follow me, and I can get you to the lake. I can get you to that fresh water, so you can have a drink." That's what a sheikh is, somebody who knows the past. So they can tell you when you go through these states, you can go to the sheikh and say, like, look, I'm experiencing that I've, I've, I don't feel that sweetness anymore. Or I'm experiencing a certain pull towards something or I'm experiencing a, a certain push from something. The sheikh can explain to you, you know, I've had this particular vivid dream that where I saw this, this and that. Like, what does that indicate? Because dreams are also a, a window into the unseen. They're not just about brain processing of things. So a sheikh will show you all the paths and stuff. And I, when I say carefully, there are a lot of charlatans out there. So you have to find somebody who's attested for, who's got um, uh, some people who can get, bear witness and testify. And, and, um, and to also recognize that it's about the teacher, not about the students. You know, sometimes you can be surrounded with students who uh, their murids are problematic. So they can give you a wrong idea. So you have to be attached to a particular sheikh. And this sheikh will show you the path. And they will protect you from destruction. And they will also um, remind you of your Lord when you see them. 
and they will greet you. They will get you. They will take you, lead you by the hand to your Lord. So just to know that you're going to go through these stages. Part of it is going through stages. It's like in training, you have this lull. You have this kind of uh, period where you have no results. You're, I'm stuck. My weight is not going down anymore. I'm not losing any more body fat. Like what's going on? I can clearly see in the mirror that I could still lose a little bit of body fat. You know, I'm talking about healthy kind of body image thing. I'm not talking about like extreme. And you could clearly tell I'm a little bit still, but I can't, I'm not seeing anything going on. So what does the, the personal trainer and the dietitian that you have do? They actually, they can either switch your workout routine. They can switch your cardio routine. They can tell you, all right, time to change the diet now because your body has adapted to this and we need to change it. That actually is exactly what the sheikh might do to you. It's like, all right, it's time for you to progress now. If you've gone to the stage and nothing's happening, time for us to switch it up. Time for us to introduce a new dhikr. Time for us to do this. And time for us to introduce a new act of worship. Time to us to... So they'll tell you to do things. And that's for your own spiritual development and relationship with Allah so that you can keep, continue to progress. But you have to take it easy on yourself. This life is ups and downs. It oscillates. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-qabid and al-basit. He's the constrictor and he's the expander. So he has the old experience periods of expansion. And you'll also have periods of constriction. We obviously ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to always keep us in a state of expansion, to keep us in a state of gentleness and love and experience of all of his names of beauty, but to just recognize this world is expansion and constriction. And when you have that, I mean, what it's amazing. The very beginning of the of the wahi, of revelation with the beloved sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in Ghar Hira, when he was doing the meditation or with the acts of worship, which we don't know exactly what they were, the contemplation that he was engaging in. When Jibreel alayhi salam came to him, it began with an intense constriction, yes? Mm -hmm. yes intense constriction where he said his ribs felt like they were going to like go through each other. Mm -hmm. And it happened three times before he had that expansion. You know, started, that came after. Yeah. Initially, it was a constriction. Then Allah says, "Did we not expand your chest?" So, I say, take it easy on yourself, and just and and having that awareness, you know, with knowledge comes power, and the power is shaitan can't play games with you. But when you don't know, you're opening yourself up for shaitan to play a little trick on you. Like, oh, look at you! You're not feeling this. Is it even true? Do you even does it even exist? You're talking to Allah, but you're not experiencing anything. All that is actually a byproduct of ignorance. And so if we're going to close off with anything, I would say knowledge, ilm. The very first command in the Quran is iqra, read. So you have to attach yourself with a shaykh and study this religion. And it's everything to do with this religion is mu'allakun bil Qur'ani wa sunnah. So, alhamdulillah. Jazakallah khair, Dr. Muhammad. I want to thank everyone, all our listeners, um, for... Um for uh, joining us today on the on the podcast and uh, as as again a reminder please subscribe to the podcast uh give us your feedback um share the podcast with friends family co-workers anyone you think may benefit and until then we'll see you in the next program assalamualaikum peace be unto you